you could go down just like an endless number of forking paths or like cul-de-sacs in this kind of thinking of uh, you know how your choices branch off into like an infinite number of possibilities and like where are we among them kind of thing like I, I think some people just like are really drawn to that to where uh, and you can see it in uh, in these stories like there's like an inevitable sort of towards madness of like if you believe this is how reality actually is like trying to understand the nature of all of these this like web or this uh, infinite number of bifurcating paths but i do think people really like that i think people like the idea that you could find some great truth one day and you could walk with that the rest of yeah i think it's part of this like tr- search for truth and certainty where yeah. you have more of the Taoist mentality, like you're more okay with the, if a truth exists, it's unknowable. And yeah. if you have just sort of more base kind of pragmatism, it's like, well, maybe there's this great truth out there, but like all the effort required to get to it would be self-destroying. So I'm gonna do something else with my time. Happy New Year, Austin. I hope you had a good break. Uh, you do anything of, of note over the holidays? Let's do some of the small talk at the beginning, you know, ease the folks in. It's it's uh, It creates a homey atmosphere. It makes you feel warm and comfortable. We're just sitting here behind this uh, entirely silent fire, you know, in the same room with each other. Yep. I think this is the most interesting um, talking point that I have about New Year's, though it's not at all the most interesting thing <laughs> that happened to me in New Year's. The whole holiday season, but um, sure, I understand the difference. Right, right. And so, I chose to work New Year's Day because I didn't want to go to any New Year's parties, and I did. I wanted to have a really good excuse to not go to any New Year's parties or do any New Year's things because I had been invited to a few things, and hmm. so I was like, "All right, you know what? I'll just." say I, I need to work and I kind of did because um holiday season always kind of eats up money so it's nice to make some of it back yeah. I realized that this was actually a really big mistake especially because I wake up really early for work uh because everyone else is like poised to have a good time at midnight so even if I am personally not interested and i don't want to take part in the drunken horny holiday that is new year's eve i i still kind of have to be adjacent to it yeah so at least just not having to wake up early the next day is actually a really good idea even if i don't want to go to any parties because that way you know i can i can i don't have to worry about anybody waking me up it doesn't really matter if i get woken up Right, because, like, you don't live in a soundproof cube, so the rest of the world still has some influence on your sleep schedule. Yeah, pretty much, and I kind of wish more and more as I grow up that I do, or I did live in a soundproof cube. Don't we all? Yeah, right? Like a single room that's a soundproof cube that I could go to, but alas, I lack the means. So that was sort of the the, the biggest learning moment. I guess. <laughs> sure. Uh, other than that, it was just pretty solid. I got to see uh, a lot of family and a lot of friends and 
uh, go back home and um, be weirdly stressed out because I, I had to catch up with everybody. But other than that, pretty good. Yeah, I understand. On the topic of soundproof cubes, oh yeah, it sounds like a nice thing to have in in like your apartment or a house. And I would probably like the ability to wall myself off from the world. But in the past couple of years, I've developed tinnitus. So just a soundproof cube with no sound in it would be like a torture device to me, having to to listen to my ears ringing. So it would have to have like some white noise machine inside the soundproof mm, cube. Yeah. But other than that, yeah, it sounds sounds pretty great. That's pretty fair. So you have to you need you would need something, some level of background yeah. noise. Yeah. Yeah. And they have made these these um cubes before. I found this out in college when I was doing things with WVAU. And mm-hmm. they had these rooms that would isolate all sound so that when you got it, it yeah. was yeah, right? Like only you. The only thing you could hear was yourself, essentially. And apparently people could only tolerate it for mere minutes. Well, yeah. Because the sound... I, I've seen the same things, I, I think. And it's it's like not just silence, but it's like negative sound. Because the sound that you generate isn't bouncing off anything. It's just all absorbed. So that sensation is just really strange. Like you don't notice these sort of small sounds of... Uh, just assuming your voice is going to echo slightly off the wall or whatever. But when they're not there, it just is really creepy. Uh, my my cousin um, is a neurologist, and he did a lot of uh, audio experiments with um, how, uh, like, chinchillas localize sound. And so for these experiments, uh, they would be done in these kind of rooms. So I've been in a couple of them, and it's just a bizarre experience and then also like the longer that you're in there like you start hearing your own heartbeat in your ears what uh too yeah because like there's so little other sound that you're just i want to say like looking for something like searching for some something and then like if you pay attention like you can hear your own heartbeat (laughs) which is just a very strange sensation yeah absolutely that's super interesting because yeah. I was just going to say that I really wanted to go into one of those. I was like, yeah. man, I, as soon as I read that, I was like, I want to I want to experience that strange horror. But, yeah. <laughs> but that's that's very cool that you have. And also, it's really cool that your cousin has done audio experiments on chinchillas. Has he ever told you why chinchillas? Um, yeah, there was a reason behind it. It was because uh, they're... Uh, like brains were easy to observe hmm. and like when you dissected them like there there is like a range of factors of like they were easy enough to like isolate the different parts that they were looking at uh and also like cheap enough and available enough to acquire as like test subjects hmm. i think those were the main ones it's been a while since i've talked to him about his doctorate research First guest on the show. <laughs> Dude, yeah, he uh, he'd be a super interesting guy to talk to. <laughs> I got into thinking about just this the, the scenario where there was no reason for picking a chin- For chinchillas. Yeah, he, he has expressed to me that sometimes he fears that when uh, 
like he dies you will see all the like chinchillas that he's killed for science and like <laughs> hell is just them getting their retribution on him <laughs> yeah i could uh i could see that you know there may be a chinchilla heaven and a chinchilla hell and based on your weighted sins against chinchillas <laughs> yeah i mean you know which one you're going to right yeah i just imagined like there was a dartboard full of animals that's the one that's the one that we're experimenting on yeah i mean just on the on the dartboard of like all species it's like guys i don't know how helpful like doing this on octopuses is gonna be i guess throw the dart again (laughs) (laughs) someone from the international review board is like no 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 we saw where that dart landed you're working with octopuses (laughs) <laughs> you can't weasel your way look, out of this one look guys I just don't think there are enough whales for us to get a good sample size <laughs> <laughs> yeah that would oh, that's not a good science but I guess, I guess we can actually think about how their brains work and... yeah if big government didn't get in the way we could do science right <laughs> that's what I'm saying I was curious because you you kind of move from a very urban area to like a, a really rural one you usually go back home to the ranch right yeah yeah does that ever is that ever very strange does it ever kind of psych you out at all um kind of it's very quiet at the ranch so like my holidays other than seeing family it was it was a lot of watching football and then feeding the cows out on the ranch there were long stretches where i was either like by myself or like just with my aunt uh, out at the ranch. And so like going from like an urban environment to one where like I could walk out into a pasture and be the only person maybe, you know, in a thousand foot radius of myself, you know, Mm. uh, is different. So it's like a different kind of, isolation in rural areas because like urban environments can be isolating but in that you're like a face in a crowd kind of thing yeah uh but um it's different when you are like very much literally like physically alone um but uh it was kind of like i enjoyed it it's it's nice in short stints i don't like it in longer uh, durations like the the longest that I've been out of the ranch was three months between uh, freshman and sophomore year of college, and that was back before like they put in a really good internet connection. So now it's great, but then it was like especially isolating. Like I couldn't really interact with uh, with you all, uh, and like couldn't really play video games or anything for three months. <laughs> And then, like, was just so ready to be back in D.C. Over um, that, yeah. Yeah. But over the holidays, it was nice. Like, I read three books while I was home, uh, watched a lot of football, ate a lot of, like, sweets and good food, uh, and had some, I had some quality time with family, like, less than uh, I had wanted, because not everyone could, like, make it out to the ranch after 
Christmas. We we went up to Waco for Christmas itself mm. and and got and spent the day there. Um, so this is the first Christmas like not at the ranch. I I enjoyed having the time alone. I I think um, that makes sense. But yeah, yeah. In short, in short doses, it's actually kind of cleansing. Mm-hmm. That yeah, that's nice. And one of the books you read, I know, <laughs> is Hyperion. Yes. Yeah, I did read through Hyperion uh, and really enjoyed it. I, I love how Hyperion like called its shot really early in the story. And like when I've been describing it to people, my one sentence summation of Hyperion is that it's Canterbury Tales in space. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and Hyperion itself like makes that con- connection really directly when like the, the different characters start telling their stories or like made the decision to uh, tell their stories while they're on this journey, like making this pilgrimage to Hyperion and to a specific place on Hyperion, uh, that the poet like directly quotes from Chaucer as they start yeah. uh, telling their stories is like, oh, oh, there it is. Like, okay, I, I see what you're going for. To just lay it out for anyone who hasn't read Hyperion, uh, it's uh, a book by Dan Simmons, and the story is in this, you know, sci-fi future setting where humanity has left Earth and settled a bunch of different worlds that are connected by what they call farcaster portals that uh, allow instant travel between worlds, and then there are other worlds that aren't part of this web uh, that you have to travel in uh, faster than light ships, but these ships still take months to get somewhere. And there's a, a relativistic uh, like time difference that you accrue. They call it time debt on these uh, journeys. And so Hyperion is one of these planets that's outside of the web that the six main characters are going to. And it's the center of both all their individual stories and then like this greater conspiracy, uh, like grand galactic political intrigue uh, that you discover over the course of the story. Uh, and you you learn more about both the individuals and like the worlds that they inhabit through them telling their stories. So like it's a really good sort of show don't tell kind of world building. Uh, which is more artfully done than a lot of sci-fi. Uh, but there's still some like pretty direct explanations of like, this is what this technology does. Um, I really like all these people had like really good and compelling reasons for the journey that they were going on. Uh, the one that like I found most compelling was, uh, the father whose daughter uh, mm. is affected by basically a Benjamin Button disease because of her visit to Hyperion to where she went to this place called the Time Tombs that uh, no one knows why, but time is passing uh, backwards there, at least from like our frame of reference. Uh, and then she, uh, like because of her visit there, begins aging backwards and has this kind of interrograde amnesia where she wakes up every day 
remembering one day less than uh, she had previously. Uh, and so she's just aging backwards until she's going to just disappear, and he's trying to save her from that. Uh, and they they tell the story uh, in just a, a really emotionally affecting way. Yeah. Um, and the guy who had the least compelling reason to me was the fucking poet <laughs> on the journey <laughs> because his whole reason for going is that this monster that inhabits Hyperion and like kills people uh, is his muse and he's just writing a super good poem that's going to be like the best poem in, in history and he needs to be there to uh, like interact with the monster and I was just like god of everyone else has such a good reason for being there but yours is <laughs> that you're just trying to write a really good poem I don't know also the way that the story is written with like all these poetic references and stuff makes me think that Dan Simmons is gonna make some point later in the series that poetry at some level like taps into the metaphysics of the universe and like god if that's the case i'm gonna be so upset <laughs> because god damn it <laughs> like, yeah um, <laughs> yeah absolutely that uh, i have mixed feelings because martin silenus who is the poet uh yeah is maybe my favorite character in that book Really? Yeah, I think he's just... <laughs> well, here's how I would say it. I would never want to hang out with Martin Silenus. Yeah. I'm not... Like, I don't like who he is as uh -huh. written in the book, but I like the way that he's written in the book. And I sure. think that he is often one of the more interesting characters and, like, one of the bigger drivers of action than any of the other characters. Like, I think if you had to remove any one of the characters and see how the thing shaped out. And I think if you removed Martin Silenus, it would be much, much less interesting as compared to like any other character. Like, you I guess, <laughs> I guess, but, but like, that's all just because of the author's choices. <laughs> like, of course. Yeah. I don't know. Like I, I really didn't like him, but I also enjoyed how, all of the other characters don't like him. <laughs> and just every time he opens his mouth, he's like just seconds away from getting punched in the face. <laughs> so I, I at least found that part believable from Dan Simmons. Like yeah, everyone else just being like, God, you're insufferable. Please stop. Please stop. Please stop. <laughs> yeah. Like opening your mouth either to insult someone or quote poetry. This is terrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, no, absolutely. I, and that's what I mean where, you know, he's terrible. He's totally terrible. But this is, this is a guy who at one point in the story just can't seem to get his writing on track. So he yeah. gives himself a goat dong and he runs yeah. around just having sex with people. So it's, it's yeah. you know, and that also tells you a little bit about kind of the bizarreness of the book and just yeah. <laughs> the weirdness of the future Dan yeah. imagines because yeah. I promise you that is like one of the less absurd details in the book. But yeah, yeah, man, it is. It's my thing is that, you know, of course it's because of the, the choices that he makes and all that. But like, if you look at like Lenar Hoyt, 
you know, who is mm-hmm. the priest in one of the stories, mm-hmm. he is just a small gray man who never does anything. Yeah. And then yeah. you have other characters who are like more interesting, like um, Kassad or the console mm-hmm. to some degree. But man, Martin Silenus just uh, constantly brings a spice. And I think it does at least make things pretty interesting it at least uh, keeps the the downtime, you know, like somewhat full of a conflict rather than having it just be like waiting for another story to start because they're actually never mm-hmm. really in threat of death in their, their sort of movement towards this monster, the Shrike, because I think the author knows, I think to Dan Simmons credit, he understands that, you know, that he's not going to kill them that early mm-hmm. like yeah yeah i mean i loved this book and i loved it because literally the whole thing is backstory <laughs> like it ends with them getting there <laughs> like it ends with them like about to walk into their destination yep and then it's like yeah the next book is like Basically, if you were to start the movie, that the next book would be the start of the movie. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, I loved it. I uh, all of my stories are all prologue, so I this one was just really well done. Uh, and then another thing to to compliment the book is like a lot of sci-fi from like the '80s and earlier just comes across as dated. Mm. Like you can tell that it was written in the 70s or the 60s or just by some detail of how they envision future technologies. Like if you read Foundation, uh, it's like clear that the computers are all still very like limited in their capacity or like still take up Mm. a room kind of thing. Uh, And or like people don't realize the just how broad the impact of like mass computing is going to be on society or, or things like that. Yeah. Um, or like the gender relations are still very like traditional in, in like mid 20th century. Yeah. Even though it's like 500 years in the future. But uh, in Hyperion, like despite being written in the eighties, like the idea that there's uh, a society of intelligent AIs that have seceded from human control, but like coexist with humans. Like I, I could see someone writing that today mm-hmm. and it, it, but like it took me, it sent me back a second. I was like, wow, that's actually like a really good kind of, you'd have to be pretty far out there to write that in the eighties. Like today it wouldn't be that big of a, a shock to include that in a sci-fi story but uh to just really i don't know have that much belief in like the power of like sentient computers uh in in the 80s was still like uh, much more of a, a bold uh story element totally i i really agree with that i hadn't thought about that before mm. before you broached it but it's a really good point because I w- I've also started to pick up Aldous Huxley's uh, A Brave New World. Mm-hmm. And that one is super interesting. It's made all the more interesting by the fact that I'm listening to it on audiobook. And yeah, sometimes, the narrator for that one's really good. 
Oh yeah, it's 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 very curious, and I also am listening to uh, it sometimes on a speaker while I take showers. So mm-hmm. I presume that my roommates can hear some of it, and <laughs> I think I've just totally lost it at parts. <laughs> but it's definitely an example of a dated sci-fi in some ways. True. Like in some ways, it's it's actually pretty forward thinking. Like in some in certain Social capacities, like especially, it has mm-hmm. some things very down, but there's still the weird thing of like gender equality seems to be achieved, but there are also just no no women in important positions. That's true. Which is like, yeah, and that gets to me like on a world building note because I'm like, what? what? <laughs> Where are they? But yeah, uh, but like Aldous Huxley is also kind of limited by his own perspective. But yeah, I. Exactly. Uh, how far how you into that? I'm not so far yet. Basically, okay. I've only gotten to the part where the seeming uh, male and uh, female protagonists mm-hmm. are dating. Okay. And have gone on their first date, and of course, the man is uh, in- insufferable yeah. because he's he's his he's his own independent thinker. Yeah. Um, he's he's the protagonist in Brave New World is similar to uh, the prag- protagonist in. Um, 1984 he's similar to to Winston a little bit in that like he's kind of a a boring um uninspiring guy but he has like a slightly different perspective than the rest of society around him or that he feels is different and so he feels like a little bit alienated uh but he himself is not that like compelling um I, I will say as like one minor spoiler to like later in the story when they kind of like peek behind the curtain of, you know, who's controlling the society, uh, they mention that, like, it, it takes place something like five hundred years in the future or something. But uh, like after the the last great calamity that afflicted the world and the the, the new society that they built up after that, uh, technolo- technological progress has been strictly controlled, and they only mm-hmm. release new technologies like insofar as they will enforce social stability, but they don't uh, just allow sort of wild innovation to take place. It's just only technologies that will continue to keep society the way it is or the ones that are allowed to propagate. So as far as why they're like kind of stunted in some areas of technology, like there's actually a in-story reason for that, yeah. But this also brings me to two points. Mm-hmm. And one is that uh, Brave New World and Hyperion do share some element of datedness because I think the one mm-hmm. way in which Hyperion is dated is the prose, the style of the prose. Mm-hmm. And Brave New World has that except just doubled. Yeah, like the 30s. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's definitely one of the things I noticed with Hyperion where I think nowadays people would be less tolerant of, you know, an author like creating their favorite poet in world and having that poet have sex with another character. Um, and sort of a lot of the long poetic metaphor and Mm -hmm. some of these things that are like very high sci-fi. I think even now high sci-fi has kind of come to turn on a little bit and say, (laughs) okay, we can write a lot shorter, we can write mm-hmm. a lot quicker, and we don't have to, you know, belabor it. Yeah. And goodness gracious, 
Brave New World only has that effect, but even more. <laughs> so yeah. that's what I see in terms of, you know, uh, a similarity, I guess, between them. Um, but yeah, Hyperion, I do really think does a great job of imagining a future that's so wild and so mm-hmm. crazy on so many ends that it should really never feel dated. It should mm-hmm. be good to read in 2100 because even in 2100 people could imagine this society of instant teleportation and AI hive minds and all sorts of weird genetic modification. Yeah. That's something that I think it's just really smart. Every time I think about Hyperion, I think it's just such a damn smart book. Like all the decisions made seem like they were made so intentionally just to make the book watertight. Like the way the Mm -hmm. characters introduce themselves eliminates so many problems. The way the reason that they're brought together eliminates so many problems. The structure of the world, the structure of just each story. It's, it's, really really incredible to me I, yeah i don't know i think it's from the other side of it it's super hard to plan out a story with those ideas in mind it's really hard to go into a story and think like this is what i'm gonna do to get rid of this or this is what i'm gonna do to fix this especially because a lot of times it's like oh i just had an interesting idea i'm gonna write it down and so it makes me wonder too how much dan simmons really did plan it out I mean, to some degree, it had to have been, right? Because there's so much, like, interconnection between all the characters that it's clearly not just, uh, you know, kind of developing the story as he goes. But he had to have, like, an endpoint in mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. One detail that uh, struck me just as far as, like, datedness was... Uh, from the console story, like the woman that he falls in love with, or is named Siri, and there's uh, Siri's Rebellion. And like, I highlighted that so fast. <laughs> it's just like, mm, prophetic. <laughs> um, but also, yeah, just entirely, un- you know, and she's entirely unrelated to the whole AI hive mind called the Techno Core. Um, but uh, anyway, I like every time that they talked about like, series melodious voice or something i just had to laugh yeah no it's very it's very true that part i think that part's dated in that sense and then it's also dated and then it's like what in the what in the world when did we get here where we're reading this like super sappy sci-fi romance that's you know that, that that to me felt really dated oh also because i listened to hyperion's audiobook i do feel like I need to tell you that Martin <laughs> Silenus's voice actor always sounded like he was talking with a mouthful of crackers. <laughs> Great. Yeah, I just felt Great. like you needed to know that. And Did they give him like a, a British accent or something or what? No, like... no, I love it. He sounds very much, he sounds like what I imagine H.L. Mencken sounds Okay. Okay. Know what Mencken sounds like. Yeah. But this is very much what I imagine he sounds like. And it's 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 a sort of an angry, terse American voice that uh, is constantly eating crackers while trying to talk. Nice. Uh, yeah, it's very good. That part's very good. There are other parts that are that are li- wanting a little bit. 
but I can't blame them because it sounds like they only got one guy to do all the voices. And by the mm-hmm. end, you can tell it, it really wears on him because he actually fucks up on several instances and uses the wrong voice for the wrong character. <laughs> and I wasn't even mad because I was like, yeah, you're doing like a bunch. You're doing yeah. a lot of work here. Yeah, both the like main characters and then all the characters within their stories. Like, yeah. And they're like so, they're so different. There's like AI characters that obviously have to have a sort of a more robotic voice. And then there's characters from this world that should have this accent. And there's characters that are, you know, there's, there's so, so much of a swath where I was just like, yeah, I'm sure at a point there was no way you were going to see, you were going to not screw up. How? Back when we weren't as as serious as audiobooks. (laughs) How stereotypically Jewish were the voices on Hebron? (laughs) <laughs> not, not that stereotypical okay. Jewish. It was very respectful. Good. Yeah, it was yeah, very respectful. Also, Kassad's voice was like the manliest thing you've ever heard. I'm sure. Yeah, it's hard to believe a voice goes that deep and is still distinguishable. Um, it was awesome. The No, I like the Hebrew voices. I felt like they were voices of like real-life Jewish people that I would know and not mm-hmm. like, you know... Um, not like Saul Greenberg, who runs the New York Deli or whatever. Um, so I thought that that was that was very well done on their part. And um, I, in general, I was actually really pretty pleased with that Jewish segment. But I felt like it was weirdly obvious that Simmons was like one of these odd Jewish appreciators. Mm. Um, which... I don't know. And I'm not trying to like say that like it's a bad thing because I I think it's fine to appreciate another culture and to even like sort of be a little bit of like a weeaboo about it, you know? Sure. I've known a lot of people that have done that. And I, I to an extent, I do that too to ch- like Chinese culture and things like that. And I think if you're respectful, it's, it's really okay. But it, it did at times just strike me as weird because it seemed like the questions they had were such like questions that like outsiders would pose mm-hmm. like thinking like, Oh, I bet like Jewish people think this a lot kind of thing. And I felt like in reality, it's more like those things just settle into worldview when you have them. So there were a lot of these questions of like, how could you live with this, this sort of uh, old Testament intense, you know, Hebrew God that does not seem to have a lot of mercy or these kind of things. And in my mind, I was like, I don't know that many Jewish people to have asked that question. I don't know. Maybe I just haven't been asking them if they ask it. Uh, But even in my own mind and in like the mind of my mom and my grandparents, it seemed like it was more just an internalized thing than like, I'm constantly going to be asking questions of God and thinking about Old Testament Bible stories. And I mean, he's got a story to write too, so. We definitely got more of the, like, theological deep dive or, like, the, the like, angst in, inherent in, like, a worldview uh, from, like, the Jewish perspective than we did from, like, the Catholic. Like, even though, like, Catholicism in this story has, like, faded into obscurity <laughs> and, like, Judaism is still going strong. But, yeah. like, you got a, like, there's the whole planet that is the new sort of jewish home world 
but there seems to be like this trend in sort of the mainstream Judaism of that exists in this future of like taking things a lot less seriously from a religious perspective and because like God broke his promise not to destroy the world for a second time. So there's just this like large cultural trend in Judaism of like still ha- like keeping their traditions, but just being kind of like overall less reverent, <laughs> uh, which was really interesting. But I was like, but why is the Catholic Church unchanged? <laughs> like, it's just immune from all social pressures forever. <laughs> like, uh, so yeah. it's like, here are all these, like, interesting ways in which Judaism was changed by humanity's flight to the stars. Meanwhile, there's the new Vatican on another planet, and it's just doing the same old thing that it's always done. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. And it's one of the things that... They, it struck me and I was really happy as the book progressed because when it started off like just so Catholic mm-hmm. it was a little tough for me because I was just like oh my god <laughs> yeah. Catholic. like yeah. just so much about just like self to the natives and, and yeah oh my god. yeah that yeah Christianizing natives and all this and I was like boy if this is a book of this I don't know <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't um yeah, no, and you're totally right, right, where it's like the the Jews in this weird, uh, super sci-fi, unrealistic, tropey thing all agree to make this really weird um, unilateral social decision based yeah. off of a great philosophical question. Yeah. Meanwhile, the ca- the Catholics are just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, whatever. So... Yeah, I definitely, I think that's a, a good example to put to it, because I was having trouble thinking of of solid ones. Um, I cannot believe that I did not think to sell this book to you as a book entirely made of backstory. <laughs> yeah, that would have been the strongest selling point. I know, I can't believe I missed it. But you know, you, know, you had um, missed a pretty good selling point of three-body problem, in my direction, which is that uh, a good portion of that book is literally just like an absurdist short play where ancient Chinese emperors try to revive their dynasties. Uh, <laughs> like their people are basically like inflatable balloons. <laughs> I mean, I told you about the weird aliens communicating through a VR video game, but I guess if you haven't read Ender's Game, that's not as much of a selling point. Yeah, that's fair. And I, I didn't because I learned the thing. I learned that Orson, Orson Scott Card is a bad man. And so I um, yeah. I was never really going to buy it. And sure. I thought about, you know, listening to it because I think I have it on uh, audiobook. But mm-hmm. man, there's there's plenty of good sci-fi out there. It's kind of just like, I guess if I get around to it. Sure. I understand that. Right. Yeah. I'm not I'm not a ducking the guy, really. I am ducking giving him money, but I'm not going to duck him. It's just whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Three Body Problem also uh, has surprised me a good deal. And one of the things I actually really do like about that book is that I think its prose, especially for sci-fi, is very modern and it has very little fat. Yeah. It has some fat in form of science where uh, you can tell that um, 
the author really wanted to write about his cool engineering or science thoughts. And mm-hmm. so sometimes you'll get like specs about stuff or you'll get um, advanced discussions on certain things that I think are, uh, you know, a little bit just like uh, passion paragraphs. Yes. But even still, like even those don't go on as long as I would say like Hyperion's passion paragraphs about freaking Keats. God, yeah. <laughs> I had to say that was one part of the book that wore Just, on me a little bit. Yeah, it wore on me a lot. Where, <laughs> like just the number of like Keats references and how it inter like Keats interacts with the story as a whole to where he's like integral to the structure of the story. I'm like honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if Dan Simmons is like poetry you know is at this like core to understanding the universe as much as physics is and like i'm just waiting for that sentence or someone to like make that argument and then i'm just gonna like throw my ipad across the room <laughs> but, like, <laughs> um, i mean I'll, I'll i'll read the series but uh i know what you but, mean though yeah I do. well and that's why i think martin silenus gives me some hope that he won't <laughs> because that shows me that like he he has an eye on himself. I mean, I have no, I have no idea. Uh, I guess the series has already ended, so it doesn't matter mm-hmm. about Dan Sim's current uh, business. But I feel like Martin Silenus shows that he had some sort of self-criticism in him, and he could look at the author trope of like this super self-serious writer type who mm-hmm. is always talking about the craft and chasing (laughs) views and all this and how insufferable that actually is. So I do feel like there's a, there's a decent shot that he, he might not succumb to that. And (laughs) it might just be like this sort of generic, Oh, there's, there's a strangeness to the universe that can't be captured easily Mm. by, you know, scientific measurement, which to me, I'm okay with that. That's, totally fine with me like you said if if there's a thing of like poetry can capture it though like <laughs> you know that yeah. that is where i'm kind of like uh, <laughs> yeah you know i think um, the fun of that kind of stuff is that like nothing can capture it right like that's the interesting idea yeah but that might just be me well i mean speaking of strangeness in the universe uh, we <laughs> both uh we both interacted with a couple of stories that have to do with like alternate timelines, alternate realities, like how our choices affect the universe. And uh, I think these stories are, are, are fun. Uh, specifically, like I recommended that you read Garden of the Forking Paths by yeah. Jorge Luis Borges. And I recently watched the new Black Mirror uh, Bandersnatch which is done in the format of like a pretty typical uh, 80s choose-your-own-adventure kind of story, but um, branches into how your choices in one timeline will then affect other timelines and gets like very mm-hmm. metaphysical very quickly. Uh, and so, I don't know, I thought we would talk about these kinds of stories like these specific ones but also like this kind of uh narrative like what you think about that is like Mm. i'll say off the bat i think these are 
cool stories and like fun discussions to have, but they've never like captivated me in the way that they seem to captivate some people where like uh, you could spend, you could go down just like an endless number of forking paths or like cul-de-sacs in this kind of thinking of, uh, you know, how your choices branch off into like an infinite number of possibilities and like, where are we among them kind of thing. Like, I, I think some people just like are really drawn to that yeah. to where, uh, and you can see it in, uh, in these stories, like there's like an inevitable sort of pull towards madness of like, if you believe this is how reality actually is like trying to understand the nature of all these, this like web or this uh, infinite number of like bifurcating paths uh, just makes you incapable of like living in the world that act like surrounds you, you know? Yeah. Cause you're trying to like always look past it to the next level kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I've never, I've never really felt that like draw that like the main characters often do or like, Whenever you talk about these stories with some people, I just think it's like a fun thing to talk about of like, oh, isn't this like an interesting view? But I'm curious, like what you think about these kinds of of stories and this kind of like view of like there's another layer behind our reality and it interacts with a bunch of other realities kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, the first thing I wanted to say that you mm-hmm. me on a little bit is the word of the podcast is bifurcating <laughs> please write down bifurcating in your copy books now having done that <laughs> yeah let's talk about some bifurcating stories <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know i think it's i have the mind of it that it's a tool mm-hmm. like, this is how i think about a lot of the different grander philosophical things that you pick because you mm-hmm. can make a really interesting story out of any sort of philos- or most philosophical notions. Like I really do think that. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, you know, you kind of have to be like responsible with that kind of thinking too. But um, the, it's just about like what you do with it. Right. Where it's like, if you're, making some interesting characters come out of that. If like your madness has sort of an interesting effect on the character, or if you kind of, you have some idea that attaches to it or that springs from it that manifests in like good art (laughs) to put it simply, I guess, Mm -hmm. then I'm pretty okay with it. I do agree with you that I don't necessarily read those stories and, have like a hard sympathy with the protagonist and mm-hmm. like, Oh man. Yeah. Th- this is, this is crazy. Like I would lose my mind as well. You know, mm-hmm. more often I'm, I'm like, this is, this already feels pretty alien to me. And it actually puts me almost in a mood more of reading the story, like as a, like a craft exercise or, mm-hmm. as, you know, a, a means to p- to pick it apart and see what I like and what I don't like. And I definitely did that with the Borges story where I was like, this is very curious and there are things it's doing that I like. And then there are also things that it's doing that like, I'm not sure that I like. And it also read like a story 
it read like a story I'd read in English class. Yeah. And well, to, I hadn't read one of those in a while. Yeah. So to, to give like some frame of reference, like as much as you can, could you like briefly summarize what happens oh, in the story? It is a story I've read for English class. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. absolutely. I can though. Um, so bifurcate. <laughs> yeah. In the garden of the Forking Paths, there's this uh, Chinese man who has seemed to have done the UK dirty by selling out some secrets of an attack that they're going to launch and mm-hmm. is uh, essentially this... In World War One. Yeah, in World War One. Yeah. Oh, thank you, yeah. In World mm-hmm. War One, And he's essentially the last of kin, or maybe not the last of kin, but grandson of this uh, governor in China who kind of went crazy, resigned all his posts, and started trying to build this labyrinth and write this book. And so this man uh, is freaking out because he's on the verge of being arrested. He's on the verge of being killed. And so he has the sense that he needs to do this one last thing. He goes out to the English countryside to uh, visit a famous expert on China and he meets this man who essentially tells him that he's decoded his grandfather's like crazy, super hard to read, nonsensical tome. Uh, mm-hmm. So this man explains to his grandson that, or to the man's grandson, blah, blah, blah. This man explains to the protagonist that, um, that essentially this book is the labyrinth. It's made up of many bifurcating timelines mm-hmm. where each inconsistency in the book is not so much an inconsistency as it is the timelines splitting off. So when the protagonist of the book is dead and then next he's alive, it's actually a reflection of timelines splitting. And so his his father had reached into some sort of, um, I don't know, I guess I would say like truth of the universe or some sort mm-hmm. of weird underlying thing like that. And then the man uh, kills this famous Chinese expert for whatever reason. And, uh, it ends. Yeah. I mean, they, like they have a, a conversation where you talk, you know, they're both sort of talking about the stories, but it's clear that it's also like a metaphor for the story in which it's taking place, uh, yeah. of like how choices, uh, affect each other. Like, Oh, isn't it serendipitous that we came together here? Like as friends, like in one, uh, timeline we're friends and another we're enemies and yeah, that was a good one uh, yeah and uh the uh the main character when he decides that he has to kill uh this uh sinologist uh he he says or he he thinks um you know when you must do a terrible thing uh the key to doing it is to say to yourself that it's the choice has already been made kind of thing that like you're already, yeah, essentially you're already on this path uh, and that like, you're not sort of at a fork in the road, but you it, like, it's already in the past, like the thing that you have to do. Um, so there's sort of like multiple levels of yeah. bifurcation, whatever, you know, like of, of sort of like reflection of the different yeah. timelines. 
Well, this is where it's an immensely literary story because, mm-hmm. like most parts of it, go towards the proving this honestly somewhat niche uh, philosophical point <laughs> or thought point, um, which I know could be also pointed at sci-fi, but <laughs> usually sci-fi throws in some random world-building nonsense too, just to keep you on your toes. Uh, and it's also just like a huge character study the entire time too. So mm-hmm. literary, but yeah, it's, it's definitely, uh, all pointed in that direction. I remember reading that too, where he's like, yes, but we're meeting as friends today. So tell me more. I was like, oh, he's going to kill this guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's a hundred percent going to kill this guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I think the implication of the, him killing the man too, is sort of this idea of like, this is too much of a secret to be revealed. This is kind of the one man that knows the solution to the labyrinth, and so he needs to die kind of thing. Um, yeah, it was it was an interesting an interesting story. I haven't actually watched the Black Mirror thing to say if, you know, it was similarly designed on this point of, like, what does choice mean and bifurcating timelines and all that. But yeah. The Borges one was, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so, like, just on the the Black Mirror point, and, like, there's no real spoilers in it because, you know, you make your own path through the episode. But uh, the way that it works is you watch it. The story is about uh, this teenager in the 80s who wants to design a video game, and he's going to design it based off of this... uh, famous um and also like pretty incomprehensible like choose your own adventure story from this author who went insane and killed himself uh Mm -hmm. called bandersnatch and so he's gonna make the the game this of the same name uh and throughout the episode you are presented with choices some are like what cereal will the kid have for breakfast uh and some are like are you going to take the offer that the video game studio gives you or are you going to like try and make it all on your own? And mm. uh, like, and then as it goes along, um, it's also the same kind of thing of uh, Garden of the Forking Paths where each choice that you make sets you on a different path. But then there's also like the broader question of like how important are your choices really? Because, like, in the broader story of Garden of the Forking Paths, uh, the the impact that this Chinese spy for the Germans had on the war was ultimately negligible. Like, a, yeah. an assault was delayed a little bit, maybe. They're not sure if, like, there was this, you know, the official reason for the delay of the assault was weather, but then the whole reason for presenting this story as like, this is an alternate telling of the reason this assault was delayed. Yeah. But it clearly didn't impact who won the war. Um, and so in Bandersnatch, um, there's a lot of discussions of like choice in video games and like designing these choice paths for the player in the game that, uh, kid is making which also since you're playing essentially like a version of it in (laughs) on on your level of like controlling the story Mm -hmm. uh whenever they're talking about like you know oh you can't give the player too much choice (laughs) they're basically sort of showing their hand of like 
yeah, your your decisions here don't really matter either. Like we're the ones who have designed these paths in the maze for you to walk down, and it's only the ones that we put in front of you that you have. Yeah. Um, and there are a couple of points where you're presented with a decision, but the two options are the same. <laughs> and, uh, or um, there's one point where he has like a flashback to. Uh, like his his mother was going to get on a train that is she ends up dying in a train accident and she's uh, and she asks you like oh do you want to come with me and then your only option is no because <laughs> it's a, a flashback yeah um, but but you're forced to click no <laughs> um and so it's it's a lot of that and then also in bandersnatch another element of the story is the kid realizes he is a character in a story and has this phenomenological experience of um, realizing that he's not in charge of his decisions, but you, the viewer, are, Mm. and then goes insane because of that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And so there's also that element of, like, choices affecting the outcomes but the question of like how much do they matter and then also this element of like there's another layer to reality that you can't see but that's what's actually determining what's going on yeah yeah hmm that's interesting and this is this kind of shows a little bit of the difference too because this is now much more of a hot topic in a world that is flush with media and that's mm-hmm. flush with video games and things like this right constantly this question of like you have choice it seems like you have lots of choices but at the same time you feel confined so how real are these choices mm-hmm. in in i think Borges doesn't tackle that at all in a large part because it's like in the past that wasn't really a question mm-hmm. that a lot of people were asking and there was there i think there was even an implicit understanding that you didn't necessarily have all the choices in the world, you know, that choices were false to some degree, or sometimes you didn't have a choice. As we're now, I think we, we sometimes question that. But uh, yeah, that's, that's very an interesting approach that they took with it, as opposed to what Borges did. But I did have a thing about whether or not his, his sort of uh, spying impacted the war or not it clearly didn't turn the tides i don't think or anything like that but i I think that the note they have this note at the end of the story that says that says that this telling was clearly false in this way because richard madden the man who arrests the uh protagonist in the story um actually died uh trying to arrest another person complicit in this whole thing and so to me that actually that kind of was the the little marker that showed that the protagonist was right in this story like there are bifurcating paths there are it is a garden of the forking paths and to some degree by uncovering this future that he says he's uncovered in the story he can now see into them and i'm not 100 percent on what like the exact implications of that are whether this protagonist is insane because of that. And so he has the details wrong or 
he's sort of forked over into another universe or he's done this in in this timeline or something like that or seen himself do it and thinks he's done it and all i don't know but uh that was how i read it i read it as proving that so here's the thing about borges is like he's always working on multiple different levels and like there are like labyrinths within labyrinths of this story because the story itself is told in kind of a labyrinthine way and even yeah like the as the character like goes on a train and then like gets off in rural england and like takes three rights you know to get to this guy's house and stuff but at the very beginning of the story there's a citation of this spanish language history of world war one um the thing is that history actually exists it's got a slightly different title but Mm. the page that he cites does not have the information that he says it does oh Uh, and so like you can really like at every point in the story there's some detail where you can say he's either making it up or it's an alternate timeline that this story is from or that the main character is insane. He's just a man awaiting execution and he's fabricated this whole story uh, to explain to him, to give himself some significance uh, mm. in awaiting his execution. But like there are so many details that are just slightly off to where they could either be wrong or from another uh, reality or like you're not quite sure what the the reality of it is like you could have any number of like correct interpretations of the nature of this story of like this is the true story for the reason behind the delay of this assault or this is uh some you know concocted Mm. fiction with a bunch of like haphazard details that are left over but misinterpreted that kind of thing so uh and and borges has a whole bunch of short stories where he pulls this kind of move Mm -hmm. of uh of like citing things that are almost real or like including real citations and made up things like in the same story Mm -hmm. Uh, so i think his meaning uh in, in as far as like the significance of choice is also like open to interpretation, but that's also kind of his point, you know, of uh, both in like what he's literally saying and then in like the structure of how he's saying it. But he's inviting you to go down all of these forking paths, both like literally in the story itself and then in all these sort of like ancillary things that he in, like wraps up in in the story. Yeah. You know, this does make me understand your sort of initial point a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Because you had talked about looking at these stories and kind of personally resonating that with them, you know, or mm-hmm. how I took it was like actually applying this kind mm-hmm. of concept to your life and like thinking about bifurcating paths as it would be within your reality. Mm-hmm. And with the background that you're giving about um, Borges, it does seem like that's what he wants you to do and yeah. now that now that it's it's clear that he that's kind of what he's wanted it is interesting <laughs> to think where i am resistant to doing that you know yeah it, it doesn't i i am with you on that where 
necessarily super excited about thinking about um, the many different Austins that may exist. I think in part because I've done that and it's mm-hmm. not like ever really a fun experience. <laughs> Once I come out the other end of it at the other end, I'm like, I'm just like coded in anxiety and I'm like, oh, man, did, right. I, did I make the right decisions? You yeah. Know? And it's kind of just like, I don't know, maybe there's an Austin out there who's like a 25-year-old millionaire with like the six best-selling novels already or whatever. But um, you know what? That ain't me. So Mm. I don't really know what I'm supposed to do with that information. Like even if I discovered it, even if I cracked the code, it seems like I I, I would have wasted a lot of time, you know, in my reality. Yeah. yeah. I mean, exactly. Like that's why, you know, people both in real life and in these stories just like go crazy from thinking about like all these infinite possibilities. And like from this detail that I know about like this story and a few other Borges stories, it's not because like I got that on the reading. Like I had it spelled out to me. Like I didn't, you know, like go into the archives and like, uh, follow all these loose threads that he left dangling it was just like because that didn't occur to me to ever like look into <laughs> but uh, it's so yeah I, I agree with you in that like it's just not how I think but it's fascinating to me that there's so many people or at least like enough to where this is like a almost a genre onto itself of this kind of like mind fuck fiction. Yes. Uh, that like it's, it, there's enough of it to like sustain itself or, you know, there's, there's clearly like an, there's, there's clearly an appeal to it. But when I think about like how I go through the world or even how I like interact with most most of these stories i'm not you know like coming up with like fan theories and stuff (laughs) you know i'm not i'm not like trying to peek behind the curtain uh of like is this really how the world works like you know am i uh like being deceived by descartes demon or like what you know like (laughs) yeah yeah no i like the term mindfuck fiction i definitely (laughs) think that's that's been a long-term love people have had yeah you know i think it's Part of the appeal, and this is the what appeals to me because I do like myself um, a good piece of mindfuck fiction every now and then. Mm-hmm. I think the appeal to me is sort of these moments where it, where it feels like even you know in real life or uh, seeing others or just in in lots of different capacities, it feels like you could witness or you could be involved in like a spiral into Mm -hmm. madness you know yeah yeah then like imagining that that spiral might go somewhere else like outside of reality and Mm -hmm. imagining uh layered realities and what that could spell and how that could make your own reality so much more interesting right that definitely holds an appeal to me and i do i do like that part of it a lot i think that the the sort of finding like the truth of your reality outside of your reality is what doesn't really appeal to me. Mm. Uh, because to me, it seems... Well, I think in, in my sense, too, I've never 
been really like obsessed with like cracking the code, like finding the finding the one that one great big fact that reconciles mm-hmm. the universe, you know. Um, but at the same time, uh, I think that trying to find that like outside of your reality feels <laughs> weirdly self defeating, or like yeah. just very I don't know. It just doesn't feel like you're you're actually taking the time to look at your reality then at that point as much as you're taking like you're trying to like break it or something and to me it becomes less interesting but i do think people really like that i think people like the idea that you could find some great truth one day and you could walk with that for the rest of your life yeah i think it's part of this like search for truth and certainty yeah where if you have more of the taoist mentality like you're more okay with the if a truth exists it's unknowable yeah and if you have just sort of a more base kind of pragmatism it's like well maybe there's this great truth out there but like all the effort required to get to it would be self-destroying so i'm gonna do something else with my time but yeah like there's definitely an appeal to people who are in some way obsessive or in some way, uh, like, can't let go of, of a looser, like, have to follow every in. Like, one one interesting thing about, like, Bandersnatch was, uh, now that I've gone through the story and, like, experienced the story a couple times, there's a little bit of me that, knowing that there are five possible endings and I've seen, like, three of them, mm. like, I want to go down the other paths, but I'm not doing it to like live out the story just kind of thing just like rote repetition of like following the paths down to be a video game completionist you know like like i'm like skipping past the dialogue until i can get to the choice point and then i make the different choice and then skip past all the dialogue until i get to something new (laughs) yep no that's (laughs) and that's that's to me sometimes uh, you know, and maybe that's sort of the point of the story, right? Because mm-hmm. that captures some of the weird obsession that pushes, mm-hmm. pushes you towards doing something like that, that 80% of the activity, like, isn't actually even what you're there for. It's <laughs> yeah. like tiny part that you can get. Yeah. yeah. And then you could probably even like, I don't know, maybe it's up on YouTube or something, mm-hmm. but it's, you know, it's a thing of, uh, it's a, it definitely, God, oh, it kind of <laughs> ran out of my brain there. No, it's, but, it's what happens when you're talking about this kind of thing. Like, <laughs> uh, bifurcating path, <laughs> I'm going insane. <laughs> yeah, it's, I don't know, more it's just a big old circle. Yeah. The thing about it, uh, and that's, I think, what gets me too a lot of times, is that you, you really do just end up in a circle because, or, hmm. So in a lot of these, you end up in a circle where you you have a start where this character's figured out this great truth, and then you kind of go around and around and around, and they figure out, uh, they, they piece it together, they do all the right things, they then freak out because it does not actually, like in some way, tangibly help their reality. In fact, maybe it just makes it a whole lot worse. And then they come back to their origin point, which was like them being a kind of a crappy situation anyways. And then they kind of just like fall apart. So, uh, you know, I think that element does lose me a little. 
it kind of is more interesting to me. Like I think that the arc of transcendence or sort of an arc of where you find that truth and then it actually just like has a big pragmatic effect on reality mm-hmm. that to me is more interesting. Like, you know, if the, if the dude in the end of the board, his story was just like, I have discovered this, like shoots the man, like takes his blood <laughs> and, and just like evaporates and becomes master <laughs> of all timelines, you know, like that's, that's then all of a sudden, I think I would actually enjoy that story more. Sure, but but that's like achieving certainty when you you know it exists, right? But sure. the uh, the the thing that is so like dangerous about these stories is like you don't know, but you keep looking, and it's it's like the looking that is driving you insane because like there's enough of a hint that there's something up here, there's something uh, afoot that you know you could figure it out if you just spend a little bit more time, you could figure it out. Uh, yeah. And like maybe there's nothing at the end of that path, you know. You just end up and like, oh well, <laughs> like uh, now like I've torn off all my fingernails <laughs> and uh, I am no closer to understanding the universe than I was before. Yeah, and to me, some of that just reads as like masturbation a little bit. Sure, right. Like, you can definitely end up in that kind of look at how intellectual i am like right yeah well even just like the 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 sort of this premise of like you push out right into this this path and just by the knowing or just by increasing the knowing of this weird arcane path you have like done this thing that's weirdly virtuous or noble or you know what i mean like you've and just by moving in that direction, you have created something. And I don't know if I like really agree with that. And I think it's something that writers and philosophers use and then don't always realize that it's like thinly veiled self-justification. Well, yeah. And then there's, yeah. I mean, also like in these stories, there's just a super big egocentrism at the center of these kind of narratives of like how do my choices affect the fabric of reality? Like in the real world, like in a cosmic sense, not at all. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like, like luckily when you're an author, you decide everything in the little like fabric of reality between the like bound pages that you've put together. So like that can give you sort of an outsized sense of self importance in like that, this fictional, world that you've created is at your whim kind of thing but uh how do your choices affect like the overall nature of the universe like how do my choices like send us spiraling down these infinite paths like not in any real meaningful sense (laughs) uh like does it matter but there's a i think a real desire for it too like for every decision to be important and meaningful or really for at least any decision, like any one decision yeah. to hopefully be meaningful. Yeah. If not yeah. I mean, one. it's why you would make a philosophy or you would write a book or right. But I mean, to some degree, like to some degree, it might yeah. just be, you enjoy the function of it, but you know, at a point you'd mm-hmm. want it to affect somebody in a positive way. And huh, 
I get that, you know, I do, but <laughs> it does, it just does feel masturbatory. Like you said, there's an egocentrism to it and <laughs> it kind of, it makes me balk a little bit, especially too, because I feel like this was like one of the things that I struggled with. And one of the things that like, um, in reading a lot more Taoist literature and in just like taking that on more seriously, like that was what Taoism kind of encouraged me to struggle with a little bit, which was like, well, how self-important like should you feel in in completing your action? You know, like how much should your action be to 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 make importance and to like create you as an important figure and to like do all of this things so that you get famous or so that you impact things. And I mean, Taoism's argument essentially is like, well, not really at all. You know, you should do your work and then you should mm -hmm. quietly retreat afterwards because there's no need to gloat or there's no need to brag or anything like that. Um, your, your work is, mm -hmm. is its own sake, right? It actually was interesting too, because for a while, I think I had went in the opposite way of looking at, Taoism sort of in that light of like, oh, what is, what is this weird, impossible truth? And I feel like that's a, a real way you can mm -hmm. look at like Taoism and Confucianism in particular, but in a lot of Eastern philosophies um, or religions. And the the result of it is sort of this uh, circle that these people run in, you know, and I'd ran into a, or I'd been given a really good translation recently of the Tao Te Ching that had a good way of like separating the external that you do and the internal that you do and saying like, all right, you know, this is the internal marvel that like you're kind of wanting to get glimpses at when you can, but this is all your external work and like both are equally as valid and you need to be, you know, as involved in each mm -hmm. as possible and not just, you know, some sort of weird dude like in a small shack writing equations out and rambling about movements of the sun or whatever. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. <laughs> maybe that's my little bit of Dallas yeah. masturbation. I don't know. No. Uh, I agreed with what you were saying. <laughs> Fair enough. And I think there's, there was a, like, like you had pointed to earlier too, right? There was a way in which that coincides just right with your pragmatism, right? Of like, mm -hmm. well, I mean, of course it's, pragmatic to in a sense to like critically think about the world you know uh that has a lot of like solutions that it creates but it's also pragmatic not to do that so often and so constantly that you just like are paralyzed yeah yeah i and i think it's interesting that um these kinds of stories are kind of having a moment uh which is why i, I wanted to bring it up like i don't know what that means you know if anything but they are these kind of like mindfuck fiction stories are kind of in vogue or like at least stories that have that element to it uh to them like are there there's just a lot of them right now and i like it uh i like that sort of moment of whoa because i feel like that's the whole point of of these kinds of stories or that kind of plot element um but yeah like oh yeah the the sort of cautionary tale of these is that you can just end up in all these sort of cul-de-sacs <laughs> uh and it's interesting that so many people i think like kind of 
identify with that obsessive nature or at least there are a lot of like that people with that obsessive part to them that are vocal on the internet yes yes (laughs) to me it's really economics Mm -hmm. i really believe that we've kind of we've come to this point where we can actually see the activity and like Mm -hmm. encapsulate the incredible activity of the human race in such a depth and in such a breadth that it is actually kind of like looking at the face of some elder god as it's been written in many books and so you think now we have the capacity to simultaneously explore all paths at once and we're just going to push content in all directions is that (laughs) (laughs) no i I really think in some ways it's it's not it's like we're still obviously in the fabric of reality as it is but the reason people examine uh reality in this light and wonder about what undergirds it is because they're seeing so much of it and they're seeing so much activity and so much uh constant movement that it it actually does trip you out like it actually is hard, mm-hmm. hard for your monkey brain to understand it because you, you, there are 6 billion people on the earth or whatever, more than that. And you cannot comprehend that number. You cannot visualize that number. You cannot count to that number. That number is in a lot of functional ways, like impossible to you. And then, you know, on top of that, there are multiple countries that are making a trillion dollars worth of activity as that's measured, you know, like that are that active in creating things, whatever the hell that means. And so it's sort of just nuts. Like, it's nuts. And this was why I, when I studied economics, I loved it because that this was sort of how it often felt to me. And I had no really good way of communicating it to people or expressing it. But it was like that effect of being like, wow, I am onto something really insane and really only like the, the beginnings of it, you know? And so to me, that's that's what it resonates as. It's like people are in an era where everything is just so big. Everything is so huge. You can You can see everything everywhere, it feels like you but you don't have really any impact or choice on it because why the hell would you and you're just stuck with that you you're just stuck with it there's no real way well there are lots of ways to reconcile with it but there's no like one way sure you know there's no one thing to do yeah people want there to be like an answer yeah exactly right yeah i mean who wouldn't want that but it's just like it doesn't really exist you know it's the reality is that you've just been thrown into this scenario. I think this really, this evolutionary scenario that's just kind of totally beyond you, you know, it's a weird, crazy accident that you're a part of. And, uh, or maybe, I don't know, maybe not accident, but yeah, maybe not. Right. That's part of the question. What if that's the answer? Right. So I don't know. That's, that's to me what I think drives all of this stuff and drives a lot of like, mind fuck fiction now it's that people's minds are like actively being fucked with just by the reality Mm. well dear listener (laughs) i believe we are coming temporally to the end of this podcast which has also been a labyrinth 
Did you find the right exit? There is one. It's there. Did you take it? Please write it in your copybook. <laughs> Bifurcation! <laughs> Bifurcation! And I just want to stress, there is one path where this podcast keeps going after this point. And I want to congratulate you on if you found it. Well, I guess that's it for this path. Thank you. <laughs>